Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Today, we are not only talking about, I think, one of the best episodes of television I've seen in a long time, episode five of Andor. We are doing it with both myself, Paul Hoppy, and a TikToker who I've enjoyed for quite a long time, who has agreed to be our guest, AJ Starkiller. You may know him as Jedi Starkiller on TikTok and on Twitter. And he's going to be here with us. We're going to have great conversations, all that more after a commercial break that the corporation whose name I always forget in Star Wars probably has control over, but who knows. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, one of your hosts. I'm joined, as almost always, by erstwhile guest, Mr. Paul Hoppy, who hopefully won't comment on the fact that I probably should use the word erstwhile wrong. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm I'm well. I will resist commenting on that. <laughs> I but I will say you're I correct, I believe. Anyway. Um, and as I mentioned, um, I partially got into TikTok because I just – I wanted more places to have these conversations with folks. And I wanted to engage in those conversations and then eventually trick those people into wanting to come on my podcast. And uh, uh, we had a couple of people do that already. Uh, Jedi Starkiller has been one of my favorite voices on TikTok. Really getting into – first of all, I, th- I think I first saw your stuff, AJ, when you were, like a lot of us, really pushing back against the hate that was being directed uh, towards the actors of Kenobi. Um uh, particularly the actress playing Riva, and I just really started to enjoy your stuff and found that not only are you incredibly insightful about Star Wars, but a lot of times you have like have a great deal of knowledge about it and just put a lot of thought into it in the way that that a lot of the rest of us have who have clearly wasted too much of our free time engaging in this fictional universe. So say hello. How you doing? Well, thank you very much. Your words are too kind. Um, I am already incredibly happy to be here. Um, I've also been a fan of your content as well and joined TikTok for much the same reason. Because what is the point of having spent so many years learning about, reading about all of this fun stuff in this fictional universe if I don't find other people to talk about it with? Right? Like, how many of us were told by our parents or people in high school, like, stop blathering about that. No one cares. You know what? I found 984 people who cared about what we said last week. Uh, Not that I... You know, obsessively check our listener numbers or anything. But um, so I'm still going to have this. So let's actually stop being self-narcissistic and, and jump into the topic. Um, and I'll do that actually by letting you be a little bit self-narcissistic and tell us more about yourself. How, what's kind of your story with, story with Star Wars? Like where – when did you first enter the Star Wars universe? How has your kind of feelings over it grown and changed and, and made you into the fan of the content creator you are now? So – Star Wars has always been a very big part of who I am. Um, I was one of those kids who grew up with the VHS copies of the movies. Um, and so, like, I wore out. I remember fast forwarding. I think it was this, the first, like, DVD, or the, excuse me, the VHS that had the interviews with George Lucas before the movie. And so you'd always have to rewind the VHS and then I'd fast forward through George Lucas talking and there's him talking about different things. Then I'd get to watch the movie and I, I just always watched Empire and Return of the Jedi. Loved those two as a kid. But where I always tell people it was being 10 years old and seeing the Phantom Menace in theaters that changed me and not just for Star Wars, but forever. Um, seeing Darth, it's, it's the Darth Maul lighting up a double bladed lightsaber with duel of the fates in the background. And that realization that they can do that, you know, like they can have two blades and like, he looked so cool and that fight blew my mind. And from there I went and just started consuming every comic, every book I could get my hands on. And just like, I, I never looked back. 
Yeah. I I love hearing that. I think in many ways, that's a big thing that TikTok has helped bring me because, you know, as per people on this podcast have heard me say before, I, I, I'm a generation older. I was 21 when that movie came out. And I was at, you know, the most like teenage, young adult, cynical, I know everything. And I just hated it because it was just, it was not, it was not what I wanted because it was not my childhood memories that had built over 12 years combined with, you know, everything I, at that age that I thought I wanted. And for a long time, I just didn't really ever think of the prequels as, as Star Wars movies. And a lot of it, first of all, the Clone Wars, I think, makes the second and third prequel movies just fundamentally better in so many ways. But also just listening to people like yourself who got to experience those movies as kids and so got to have that sense of wonder and exploration getting to hear like see those movies through eyes like yours has like i still think the dialogue is terrible and we're going to make fun of it absolutely but i i love that people love those movies and i, I love getting to he- experience them through those eyes well what's really funny if i may is that i i grew up alongside that hate for the prequels and grew up mm, with sure. with that like echo chamber of people disliking them and i remember going through a period of my life where i would actively trash on the prequels i still loved them but like whenever i was in company of other friends who were star wars fans longer you know they would always like talk bad yeah. about them and i would join them and to this day i don't talk about it much because i prefer to talk about things that i like Attack of the Clones has a fight for the my least favorite movie. It, like <laughs> the entire first hour of that movie is a pain for me to get through, and like mm-hmm. and it's all just George's dialogue is the main problem there. Like you said, but like, and I didn't I didn't watch the Clone Wars until a few years ago, like before season seven mm-hmm. came out. I didn't watch mm-hmm. Clone Wars until then because I was at that point where I was like. I like the I like stuff from the prequels, but I don't like the prequel era. And right. it took really going back, watching the Clone Wars, and then reading, particularly reading all of the supplemental material around that era. And now, mm. now I love that era, and I love those movies. But it really does. You're right. Like the films alone do not make that era what it is it's it's a combined effort of all of the media in that era yeah i think so it's it's interesting to hear that um you watched specifically you mentioned empire strikes back and return of the jedi over and over which i also had on vhs uh two copies because i had the you know the letterbox pan and scan and then i had like the widescreen edition because i was like okay i need like the real you know the actual thing that they filmed and i also watched those two movies over and over and over and i always I mean, it's funny because it's like, well, A New Hope came first, right? But like, not for me, you know, it it came out in 1977. I was born in 1978. Like, I believe I watched that movie after I saw Return of the Jedi, which I think I might have watched after I saw Empire Strikes Back. And so in a way, like A New Hope was like, for me, kind of like the like, Oh, that's the one with the cheesy George Lucas dialogue and like mm-hmm. the we did it, you know, like kind of like sort of goofiness for me for a long time un- until I saw the or prequel trilogy, which then I, I was like, oh, George wrote these, huh? Yeah, I think I think that um, just like like you said, generation really has a lot to do with it. I found honestly 
A New Hope to be really slow when I was mm. a kid because the movies that I was used to seeing when I was six, seven, eight, uh, you know, were movies that were coming out in right. the 90s. And so, right. like, it was just a different pace of cinema. And it took me getting older to enjoy A New Hope. Now A New Hope sits you know, high at the top of my list yeah. because I can understand it. But like, I mean, try being 10 years old and seeing Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon and Darth Maul and then going back again and watching Ben and, and Vader just tap sticks, yeah. essentially. I love it now, but watching them just go tink, 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 dead was such right. a jarring experience. Which to me, I, I'm an even older generation than Paul uh, being a good six months older. Um, eight months, eight but, months. Anyway, eight go months, ahead. Not to, <laughs> the point, yeah, to me, it was new because it was on Betamax, not this fancy new VHS stuff. I had anyway. Uh, there's a lot of people who are like, "When the hell are you two all going to shut up and talk about Andor?" So um, here's the transition. As we've talked about, like it, it's different styles of things. Yeah. And I think I, I'm loving Andor so much because it's giving me something that Star Wars has never given, which is. And I feel like we've talked about this already, but I feel like this episode especially really narrowed home. Every one of these pers- people is a person. Mm. Every character we have met, except maybe Mon Mothma's husband. But even there, <laughs> I have a sh- I have a small part that thinks I understand where he's coming from. All of them are real people with flaws and with good sides and some of them working for not good sides. And like, I'm just blown away by the sheer character nuance because this is not – like, the days in the life is not something I ever thought we'd get from Star Wars and not something I ever thought I'd like as much as I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say, like, the the pace of the filmmaking allows for that, you know? Mm-hmm. It it really is a, just a very different style of filmmaking than than most of the, you know, everything else right. we've seen in, in Star Wars. Um, and to be, you're talking about the TV show, but, like, yes, the filmmaking is probably the right uh, – TV making is not a term. No, it, it's filmmaking even if they're shooting yeah. on digital. It doesn't – yeah. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking about the making of – theatrical releases you know it's right. it's the same no, but, medium right i mean and and not using the volume has been a big thing like mm, the volume the way they filmed the mandalorian and stuff like filming on location that's mm-hmm. one of the big differences is everything the scope because that's the thing that the the volume can't capture and we saw that in kenobi like when reva is looking at their um uh, battling against the little speeder um, mm-hmm. and the the sizes look off the perspective looks off and yeah. and so like that's something that you just don't get without this sort of this level of filmmaking yeah like I liked Obi-Wan I, I liked the Boba Fett show a lot more than many people did but I as an experiment I watched the speeder chase in Boba Fett and then watch the speeder chase in um, Return of the Jedi through the Endor forest. And it's just, yeah, see why people think it's like the slowest speeder fight you're ever going to get. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, I keep expecting the speeder to pause for a red light in between the streets on Tatooine. Um, well, so overall, kind of AJ, what's been your thoughts on Andor? Brilliant. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I, I like the scene, but it's very slow. Well, I, I was actually going to double double down on something we were saying right there. Um, I think the the theme of this episode can be summed up in Vel's line to Andor after she's talking about what Lieutenant Gorn has gone through. Everyone has their own rebellion, like yeah. you said. That's what this episode set up. 
every single character, we see the negative impact that the Empire has had on their lives. Whether it's from Cyril losing his job, you know, and the relationship that he has with his mom, you know, whether it's Mon Mothma and her relationship with her daughter and with her husband, mm-hmm. whether it's Cassian and Skeen bonding over, um, you know, like being children in the system and Skeen losing his brother, Gordon losing, like everyone has lost something to the empire and we're seeing it on a micro level. Like Nemec talks about, you know, it's not 40 atrocities to cover up a single one. Like the, those 40 atrocities are the things that are happening to every single person under Imperial rule. And they're hiding the one giant atrocity that is fascism. Right. And scene. That's the show. Word. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote the da- I wrote that down also as one of my favorite lines, and may potentially become a tagline of the show because it just it felt so perfect for Star Wars, and and yeah, and just like a friend of mine, Matthew Carroll, who's a, a guest on this. He's the head of the whole Stranded Panda Network that this is a part of, and the MCU Cast, which is a fantastic MCU podcast. You know, he would often say that he thought that star the morality of Star Wars was more black and white than something like Star Trek. And I would often push back on him somewhat. And I do still think there is some ways to push back, but I think this show has been making me realize that there's a point he was making, which is that at the end of the day, in most Star Wars, there was still very clear good guys and bad guys. And here, the fact that, like, there were two characters who we spent time with where I found myself rooting for them. One of whom is an Imperial cop who was flat out trying to chase our hero. The other of whom is even higher, like you said, because we get this very sympathetic scene with her mother, which, you know, like a brilliant, brilliant scene. Like just the cinematography around the bowl of cereal was so good. Like just Mm -hmm. watching that cereal get soggier because he can't eat as this woman keeps lecturing him. Um, But then also... Getting to f- to meet a mid level woman bureaucrat in the Imperial Security Department, like even higher up levels of badness, mm-hmm. and and we're like watching her try to put the pieces of a puzzle together, and it's such a classic like everything in this scene is telling us to root for this person to put the pieces together mm-hmm. because look how hard she's trying, look how the system is against her, look at her being plucky and awesome. And by the way, what she's doing is going to help, as you said, enforce fascism. Mm-hmm. And but- like, and and I was just going to shout out my my friend Beth on um, Mara J. Skywalker on pretty much everything as well. She made a wonderful point. She's a lawyer, and she's like, "You can't make me not connect with a female in a male driven industry who's taking space Adderall with her coffee to keep up with the men in her position and try to get ahead." And it's like, that's, that's such a human thing that like, I never would have quite caught in the same way. And and again, it just goes to show the level of thought that goes into this show, every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's really important that they're showing people on both sides, you know, and it's like, we understand that some of those people are on the side of of like you know we've seen the the 
collateral damage, basically, or just like the total disregard for, you know, the Canari, the Aldani, like, and basically in each of these instances, it was like, oh, yeah, this was a convenient place to keep their stuff, you know, (laughs) or like, oh, they were going to mine some stuff from this place. It wasn't like some, you know, oh, some some big like. You know, they didn't have some overarching manifesto. And I mean, I know the, 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 um, uh, the one was, um, the Republic, right? That was before the Empire. But it's like, it, it wasn't necessarily as different as it's like made out to be, right? It's like a Republic can essentially be an Empire before it calls itself an Empire. That's and that is such an important takeaway from that first episode. If I had one criticism of that first episode, mm-hmm. it's that they didn't make it more clear to the audience that that was not the Empire on Canari, that was the Republic. And realizing that what is the Republic but the Empire without an emperor, so to speak, like all of the same framework is there. I was just reading catalyst, which is the, um, the prequel novel to the movie rogue one. It's so good. And my favorite moment is a tiny little interaction between Krennic and Tarkin where the empire just formed and Krennic looks at him and he goes, is it Admiral now or Moth or governor? What do I call you? Mm -hmm. And these men have worked together for years. Right. And Tarkin has to pause and think for a second. He goes, you know, I think I prefer governor. But realizing (laughs) that, like, they're still the exact same people. The Republic Mm -hmm. was not any, like, less corrupt than it is after it becomes an emperor empire. The only difference is that Palpatine is now unchallenged. Right. I'm so glad you mentioned that because one thing I love about that book is it really highlights what I think is a major theme of this show – which is kind of the way like bureaucracies in any situation, but especially under like authoritarian rule, just become like – it's where the mundanity of evil exists, you know? Because like Krennic is not a true believer. He's just a bureaucrat who wants to climb the ladder. Mm-hmm. And to me, kind of like part of what I think is the, the – one of the things that I found so – like it really hit me hard – is right. This episode is showing that there's this larger thing called the Empire, which is this systematic system of oppression. That's a terrible sentence. You know what I mean? That do it like you said. That just treats these planets as places to put our stuff. But who are the people that our heroes are probably going to be shooting in a few episodes? Next episode, probably. It's not people who are like, oh, these terrible people, we need to get rid of them. It's not people saying, all hail the glorious Empire. It's people saying, yeah, I don't really like this job, but apparently there's a really awesome thing that happens in the sky. And I was told the the one good side about working here is I get to see it. Mr. Boss, can I go see it? And yeah. I was just like, right. <laughs> don't yeah. make me care about those right. people so much. <laughs> like, it, was, it, was, it was two sentences. Paul, you really harped on this, how they told so much in two sentences. Yeah. Those two sentences Absolutely. made me utterly feel like those people – like you said, uh, being the AJ, those two are just as much victims of this whole awful system as anybody else. Yeah, and they're just people who wanted like medical and dental and like vision yeah. covered, right? And yeah. like they're like, oh well, this this big, you know, entity will like cover those yeah. things, you know, and and like maybe my mom will be proud of me or maybe not, whatever. But like it's a paycheck, and like if I'm gonna get a paycheck, I might as be some as well be somewhere that I can like see the the light show basically every three and a yeah. half years or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I will say that I really like how little 
they focused on it being the Republic in the first, I don't know if it was the first episode, but it was the first three, ep- or, it was like the yeah. first arc, right? Whatever it right. was. Um, I like that that was kind of almost like a throwaway line, but it clearly was true. And how for for Andor, it seems like he's like, what's the difference? You know, it's like, it's always been the right. same to me. And I, I like that. Th- I appreciate that the show trusts the viewer to like catch that. I imagine some people are going to overlook that. I would like, however, if later in the series, it kind of comes back to that and and talks a little bit more about how, you know, you know, the Republic wasn't so great either, you know, and it was already right. down this path before Palpatine seized full control of, of the government. Right. Um, and, right. And realizing that the it, it's funny because we see in the prequels that the, the Republic are the heroes and the separatists are the, the enemies. Right. But but the separatists become the rebels. Mm-hmm. Like when the Empire, when the Republic becomes the Empire, like Marva Andor, who, you know, who adopts Cassian, they were separatists. Mm. Like, right. and so like that moment, that's what you talked about with um, muddying those lines about who's good and who's evil. And it plays right, right in that space of books like Catalyst, Lost Stars, um, mm-hmm. Inferno Squad, these books that just like really hammer home. That's, I think, the the theme of the imperial era of star wars which is perhaps the most star wars era so to speak is that idea of who are the good guys because there is a version of the events of a new hope that is a terrorist and a religious zealot in his terrorist cell blow up a station that had millions of people on board like there's a, a version of that story that's not entirely false yeah. 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 It, go ahead. Bob. Oh, just like there's just like the little caveat like which was a station that was blowing up planets. Of, right, right. Uh, no. And I'm like, like well, no, no, no. Like, even, no, but but the Yeah, I would say even in the book Lost Stars, which AJ mentions, there are characters who utterly believe in the empire and really have to morally wrestle with why did we blow up a planet? Right. Uh mm-hmm. and and what's interesting is not all of them can do it, and some of them leave the empire because of that. Yeah. But some of them become convinced that if we blow up this one planet, that will stop anyone else from rebelling mm-hmm. and it will in the long run save and it it's it clearly broken logic. Yeah. But you under the book makes you understand why a person in that situation would believe it. And, and it's and that's the Tarkin initiative. Yeah. The I- rule through fear. Like, the the Death Star was never meant to be able to fight the entire Republic fleet, or Rebel fleet. It was just meant to blow up one planet and teach them a lesson. Right. And, and that was it. And, like, if you think it's, like, a stretch to think that people in the Empire, not just, like, true believers, would would find a way to kind of reconcile that and be like, oh, well, we had to do that because, you know, we're, well, we were actually saving lives by preventing the rebel. Like, just look at what, per- like, what percentage of Americans think like Hiroshima or Nagasaki were like merited, you know, that yeah. had any merit. Like, yeah. it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Like, that's what they teach you in school, you know? And it's like, it's not hard to extrapolate that's like, yeah, sure, it could be a planet, you know? It's right. Y- if you didn't it's meet the people. It's actually the perfect analogy because we did want to do it in large part out of fear as well, also. Not just to make Japanese, the Japan afraid, although that was a part but of it, but also Soviet to make Union. Russia. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like it goes along with all of those kind of characters. There's a great 
what there's a single issue it's like 66 or something of the star wars 2015 run where there we learn about general greel who's a, or commander greel or whatever who's a um stormtrooper and he talks about growing up on a planet where they were all at war and there was a gladiatorial arena and the empire saved him and he saw stormtroopers come in and save him yeah. from this life of dying in the pits. And for him, all he ever wanted to be was a stormtrooper because the alternative was or slavery and death. And for him, that was good. And like, those are the things that make Star Wars compelling. Like the Empire is the bad guys. They are objectively awful fascists. Like, we can't argue that. But. It's important to also show, just like the prequels do, just like episode three does, it's important to see how people fall down those pipelines so that we yeah. can prevent our own people from falling down those pipelines. And, and I think I think the mirror side of this, and this I'm going to use to pull us back to the Andor episode, because <laughs> we, we all love tangents, um, is I think the flip side of that is that it's easy to see our heroes, therefore, as always good. And... This is going to allow me to bring up a particular character moment that I want to discuss because uh, uh, of the debate that I've seen about it. Uh, Mon Mothma and her daughter. Um, one of the things I've been seeing by a lot of people is like, how dare that daughter not put more respect on Mon Mothma's name? She's a great – she's so good. She's the leader of the rebellion. The father's being bad. And like what, what I saw – and I think given your facial expressions, I think you're on my side here. But what I saw there was – that this is a very good – this is a woman who is very much dedicated to stopping the problems of the empire and does not have a healthy relationship with her partner and that seems a large part due to her partner not being great but she might have some role in it also. But also as is incredibly well documented, political figures rarely make good parents and movement leaders rarely make good parents. And what the daughter was saying was – Mom, you don't pay attention to me unless it's important that you look like a good mom in the press and in front of your political people. And I, I got the sense that it's like one part legitimate grievance, one part her father kind of like, you know, encouraging her in this way, and one part 14-year-old thinking that anything a parent does is the end of the world, as most of us, myself very much included, certainly did as a 14-year-old. But yeah, I, I, I looked at that and was like, okay, yeah. Mon Mothma really cares about the Empire and and her work as a senator and maybe her relationship with her daughter is not the best because of it. And to me, that doesn't like take respect off her name. It makes her such a more interesting and complicated character. But what what did you all think of that 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 scene and and how it's being interpreted? I don't know how it's being interpreted. I don't like look at things in the world. Yeah. But like um <laughs> I I mean, yeah, I took it as like you know, she's – they do not have a healthy family dynamic, right? Clearly her and um, – I forget what – do we know what he does? Nothing. Nothing. As far right? as I know. As far as we know, he doesn't do anything. Right. He like just, it seems like he used to be in, in the military and he's got buddies from that. But like yeah. now he's just like retired, rich, whatever kind of. Yeah. Um, I mean, he seems like a tool, you know, and like he clearly is friends with people who are definitely, you know, not on the side that we like. <laughs> but like, you know, he could still be like the more fun parent. You know, and if he does nothing, if he's not like engaged in like the politics of everything, like it would stand a reason that he'd have more time, you know, for for yeah. the daughter than than, yeah, than well. Mon Mothma does. And so, yeah, like 
not everyone's going to be Bail Organa, right? Like it seems like, at least yeah. from what we saw in Kenobi, <laughs> that he's involved in in politics and, and in the rebellion, which is, you know, it's the nascent rebellion at that point, right? It's not much of a rebellion mm-hmm. yet. But like, but he's also very involved with his daughter, right? He has a great relationship with his daughter. And maybe, maybe at points when she's a teenager, maybe it's not as smooth, who knows? But like, you know, you you can have healthy relationships between teenage kids and parents. You know, that's that's a thing. And and um mm-hmm. and so here seeing that not being a thing, like that's fine too, right? And um th- I mean th- there I, I think that juxtaposed to the um you know, formerly corporate cop guy, like, and his mom. And, you know, um, I, I think it's interesting, like actually seeing characters with, with parents and <laughs> they're actually interacting with them, you know, in different ways in, in different series, but, but here kind of a parallel between like, yeah, whether you're, you know, some, some famous person, you know, who's a politician or whether you live in one of those depressing concrete structures you know like you know you you're gonna you can have some of the same issues you know or or different issues that are are similar just in terms of like family relations or whatever um yeah and yeah i think i think showing you know your rebels showing your you know your brave heroes as like having other relationships in their life that aren't always all fantastic and it's not always all someone else's fault like i think that's good you know it's like people are people. And I, I feel like the show really treats its characters as people. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, um, and this is going to kind of double back on some previous stuff to, to talk about Perrin as well. I do think that her relationship with her daughter is very indicative that you cannot spin too many plates. You simply can't. Something, right. has, something spins slower. And for Mon Mothma, it is very obviously her daughter. Like, she's trying to, you know, lead this nascent rebellion. She's trying to also maintain a face politically. And that's what her relationship with her daughter has become. And her daughter is aware enough to know it. Like, her daughter is aware enough to use that. And, and, and Perrin is the kind of man who will exploit that. Mm, And very much that's what I was going to say with Perrin is I love that Perrin, Tim, and Cyril are all giving us these different views at toxic male fragility, like in mm. different ways. Perrin is that apathetic, rich white male who doesn't work. Like he lives off of his wife. He's got all of these like friends in high places. He kn- he's got the charm and the suave to, to get in good with them, but he doesn't really do anything. And so he's allowed to hobnob with these people and be friends with the empire because his life isn't affected by what the empire does. He's married to a senator for goodness sake. You know, meanwhile, there's Cyril who is just nothing but ambitious and kind of seems to have these expectations that just because he put in the work, he should be given these things. And like, he should be able to go and take these things, you know, and like enforce the rules and, and like all of this stuff that like, the rest of the world is telling him, like, just just sit down, man. Maybe, maybe you know, take it easy. And he won't listen. And then, you know, you had Tim who was insecure about any possible man, like, looking at his girlfriend. And, like, they're all just these examples of the way that the system breeds toxicity, specifically in men and male-presenting people. 
I think there's some really good points there. I think I disagree with you about Cyril somewhat, yeah. but let's get to that. Let's just stay on, on Mothma for one second because I yeah. I really appreciate what you said because I think the other thing that is so unfortunately kind of ground – not entirely groundbreaking. It's not the first, but but it's not common is most of the time when we're introduced to a woman character who does not have a perfect relationship with her children in part because she's so dedicated to her work – the point of the story is for her to learn that corporate ambition isn't important as the love of a good family and that wouldn't you be much happier taking a reduced job and being a great mother. And, you know, that there is some truth to that story in some ways. There's also mountains of sexism in the way that story is told, especially in that it's not often told about men, sometimes is. But I felt here they weren't saying she's wrong to have her focus be on the work she's doing. They're saying this is a consequence and it's a part of what she's feeling right now. And we're going to show you that without it. It didn't pay to me. It didn't saying someone isn't the perfect mother is so often a character attack and it wasn't here. And I thought that was both great that they made that choice, but also incredible writing and acting and dialogue to show them making that choice. You just made me realize another beautiful parallel for this show which is Mon Mothma and Deidre I think that was her name the the female ISB agent because mm. oh yeah both of them are more focused on their work than anything else but we see one who is you know presented to us as a hero and everything is falling apart in her life, even though we know she's out there trying to do the right thing and help the rebels. Meanwhile, the other one we're kind of actively rooting for, but she's she's working for the fascists. But we see her also, you know, having to take pills and drink coffee to try to keep up with this system and the men are keeping her down as well. Like we see kind of mirrored in them both the same sort of ambitions, both the same hardworking. But like you said, it's it's Almost as if the show is very subtly telling us that no matter how hard either of them work, it's almost like there's some invisible force keeping them both from mm -hmm. being accepted by those around them, whether it's their family or their coworkers or whomever. Well, and another interesting part of that parallel is that um, Deirdre has a younger, it seems, subordinate man who's very much supporting her and very much like helping her fight her imposter syndrome – Whereas my Mothma has his husband who's being pretty terrible. Right. Um, and and the, the bad guy's being the nice guy and the good guy. Like, it, it's all topsy-turvy in this world. I, I'm just finding, Paul, that me and AJ will keep going back and forth. Sorry. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I mean, when I have something to say, I will say it. <laughs> okay. <that's laughs> like, fair. I felt yeah. like I, I just don't have that much to add to, to you know, what you were just mm -hmm. saying. Like, I – Yeah. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I will say, like I don't find I'm rooting for her the same way I didn't feel like I was rooting for what Cyril, you know, Cyril, yeah, um, who, who I feel like might take a turn into the scum and villainy angle of things. Like I don't, I, like this uncle. I don't know. This uncle sounds kind of sketchy. <laughs> I'm waiting to see, you know, how that pans out. Yeah. Although, although maybe as opposed to the scum and villain, it might be more the mercenary working for the empire, but like, you know, off the books kind of thing. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like there's going to be something a little, yeah, not totally <laughs> above board about wherever that, that direction goes, but we'll see. 
let's talk about him though a little bit more. What for Paul? What were for you was was like that? I, you already talked about how depressing that apartment. What was that scene with his mother like? And like him trying to eat that sad cereal while his mother's haranguing him and. Yeah, what, what did you yeah. take from all that? Well, so, I mean, I don't understand what the point of putting milk on cereal is if the milk's already blue. But, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly since he's basically eating Cocoa Puffs. Right, right. Exactly. Hell. There's some kind he of. May be, he may be borderline a monster sometimes, but at least he puts the cereal in before the milk. <laughs> right, yes, right. That's exactly. That's true. Um, I, I mean, I thought that breakfast booth was awesome. You know, the, just like the the actual layout of the place, I think is pretty cool. But like, it's yeah. also just a very depressing decor that's got like a little bit of kind of 70s tinge of like the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the original Star Wars like happened to look like it was in the 70s because it was made in the 70s. But, you know, um, yeah, that I mean, they're relationship i think is is really interesting you know it's like it it feels like you know you can see how he's had this kind of like pressure on him but then he also like you know he he says he invited his mom to come you know uh stay you know visit him on um what primor one i think it is what it's called maybe Mm -hmm. um but like she's like well a standing invitation is no invitation at all like you know what was he pursuing his ambition and neglecting like his you know family relationships basically maybe right we i think it's the sort of thing where where whatever the actual relationship is between the two of them um we don't know like the truth because each of them perceived it differently right whatever the dynamic was and and that doesn't mean that either of them are really wrong or lying about what happened it's just you know they they didn't have good communication and yeah. it seems like you know he he was pursuing ambition but like that ambition has kind of fallen to you know it's gotten shredded so now he's you know i don't know where where that's going to go i i feel like they had a it was interesting to open on that but then have that be like fairly inconsequential in terms of like anything else yeah. that happened so far it, it's so interesting the way that you, the two of you view this that scene and great you have different views of it mm. to some extent but like and maybe this is just about our own relationships with our mothers i don't know or just like uh I was so sympathetic to him mm-hmm. throughout all of that. Like to me, the whole sta- – the standing invitation thing is no invitation at all. To me, that's not – he should have given more – that is like passive-aggressive parenting mm-hmm. in ways that are like just – you know, I had a wonderful mother in many ways, but I think that was definitely an issue we had. And like I, I, I'm careful with this next sentence because – to, to be clear, I, I've talked about my religion being Christianity. My father's Jewish. I grew up in a very Jewish family. I've experienced a lot of time with his fa- with his mother and with his aunts and also just understanding that part of the culture. And I was watching her kind of being like, oh, cool. Judaism is now canon in Star Wars because <laughs> this is a Jewish mother. Absolutely. But not played for laughs. Played yeah. for like mm-hmm. – feel like – I was like, he is. I had to keep like whispering in my head, like a cab, a cab, a cab, because I was so sympathetic to him, and I just felt like, of course, he's this weird mix of ambition and, um, and fragility, and so, and there maybe maybe I can come around more to your point because, but to me, it's not, it it's 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 very much about this toxic relationship he's had with his mother, of her sort of instilling in him like you're not good enough, you're not doing enough, you know. She never once asks him how he's doing, asks him, tell me about what happened to you and tell me, like, let me take your side in this, you know? You, you've you brought me back around to what I think I meant. I was kind of exploring with Cyril because I wasn't quite 
where I wanted to be on him. And, and you just nailed it home for me. Mm-hmm. He is that pressure of expectation on men in society. It's not yes, even his ambition. Now we've seen it's his mother's. It's his mother right. going, what are you going to do? You need to get a job. You know, I'm surprised she didn't ask him why he wasn't married yet. Like, I'm surprised she didn't ask him when he was bringing, you know, when he was getting, when he was going to have kids. Like, that's the mother. And that's, again, looking at the way that society puts pressure on men and male presenting people to to be the one who climbs the social ladder. Like, why didn't you invite me to your house? Like, no, I don't want to just come to your house because I can. I want you to be a man and invite me to your house. I want you to make a plan. I want you to, you know, set out dinner. Like, you bring me over for a change. You know, like, that's kind of what I got from that was just that overwhelming pressure that a lot of men feel, not just from their parents. A lot of times it is from your parents, but also just from society. Like, the man can't even take five minutes to be sad about losing his job. The job that he very clearly loved. A cab, A cab, A cab, but he loved what he was doing. Like he really thought he was doing something good, right or wrong. Right. And he's not even allowed like a moment to grieve that before he starts feeling that same pressure once again of what are you gonna do? You know, you should be more like your uncle. Let's go talk to your uncle. Like everybody's got that family member that they're compared to. Yeah, I I think that what both of you are saying is entirely true. I just I don't see it as being one sided. I see it as being two sided. And to me, it reads like two very real people um, talking to one another and having a dysfunctional relationship, you know, which um, and and, I mean, I I guess I don't relate to it the same way because that just like wasn't really ever the nature Mm -hmm. of, of my relationship with really like anybody, but um, definitely not with my mom. But I I was actually going to ask, like, like when I saw her, I was like, oh, I I was like, I was like, do you feel like she's coded Jewish? Like, is this (laughs) right? You know, 100 percent. And then when like today's like Yom Kippur, right? (laughs) I was like, yeah, yeah. we're we're recording this late because I was observing Yom Kippur and then had a dinner after sundown. And yeah, I I, I agree with you, Paul, that and that's kind of what I meant is, is I think AJ, where you came to I'm in 100% agreement, mm-hmm. and especially because like it, it's not that we're saying, oh, look, young men are part of toxic masculinity because of bad mothers. It's – no, all the same toxic masculinity has taught her right. that right. the way to raise a good son is you don't let him wallow. You don't let him like sit and talk about how he tried to do a good thing, but his bosses came down on him. You push him. And, right. and look, here's a positive male role model, his uncle, who I agree with you, is 100% working for <laughs> Cad Bane or Hondo Anaka yeah, or yeah, someone like or that. Or just the Empire. Like, I could see him being, sure, you know, or the Grand, Grand Moff Uncle Harlow, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's a possibility. The, I, I kind of like though the, the I hadn't thought I of like it, but I like him more that he, he's maybe like yeah, he always wears a nice suit because like you know he's he oh. he he knows some people who place bets on pod races. Oh you know? right, yeah, right, like right. like like she thinks maybe he works for the empire, but the reality is like you know let's go behind the door, let's open the bookcase over here and go see Jabba the Hut. Like right, yeah, 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 which, for the empire. Yeah, I work for the empire. I mean, didn't Jabba have like stormtroopers? there during return of the jedi uh, yeah, they, I, like, uh, is that no no because there's not really an imperial presence in the outer rim no that that's point. true yeah uh, i mean well they're in a new hope there's stormtroopers there yeah they're, that's they're because around of the, the big Rogue towns one. but not near yeah. 
Jabba's palace. Right. Um, I was going to say something because I have a vastly different relationship with my mother real quick. Um, yeah. So for for those who don't know, which is everyone, I'm Mexican and um, I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. And I had the opposite experience as what Cyril would have had. Like my grandmother didn't want me to work because I was an only child. Like she didn't want me to work through high school till I finished high school. And mm. then if I was going to college, she didn't want me to work either. Because if as long as I was going to school, you know, like I was because I was the man of the house, you know, it was the opposite. She waited on me hand and foot, you know, and that had its own damages. So watching Cyril have that relationship with his mother, for me, as someone who did not really experience that sort of pressure, was especially jarring and made Cyril especially sympathetic to me. Because I looked at it as like, how can a mother treat their son that way? That's not how that's not how men deserve to be treated. But that puts me almost all the way over toward parents side where I'm like, yeah, I should be allowed to just kind of, you know, be the man of the house because that's that's my duty for having been born a man. That's the gift of it, you know, and it's it's interesting to see how, again, you can really see where both of these mindsets and where both of these men come from. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about the man of the hour in a second. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The title character. I I think it's a statement about how good this show is. (laughs) Yeah. That we have spent 40 minutes discussing the characters and we haven't mentioned Andor or (laughs) all the people he's staying with. We get great characters about him. Yeah. So uh, let's do that in just a second. I'm going to quickly, though, take a quick minute just to uh, name some of the the feet feedback we've gotten in the the chat uh tj stafford said phantom menace was my first introduction to star wars i'm not immune to its flaws but i'll always love it because it's my gateway to the franchise that i love so much and yeah i i I love that i love that idea of like yeah you can recognize something's not perfect because for me that's a new hope i i like a new hope to me is a perfect movie it's really not right right but like you know it's the gateway yeah um which buffy bot basically said in the chat that you know yeah yeah. phantom menace has no no protagonist no antagonist from a film writing standpoint it is an awkward awkward watch but i love it and i will watch it start to finish every single time i see it totally fair so let's though get into uh, Andor himself, and because we meet. Well, I want to talk about Andor, but also he like we get we so much more meet, development yeah. on the characters. And I, the, Paul and I last time were were not the best on the names, so I wanted to like r- run down who we're talking about. I don't so think got, they. Oh yeah, they gave us the names briefly the time before, but this time they gave us characters. Yeah, and this time they gave us characters, and they had the characters repeat the yeah. names a number of times. Yeah, yeah, that's so always helpful. Val is the rebel leader. Val, right? Sintra. Vel. Vel, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Sin, Sin, who is played, by the way, from uh, the woman from the house of uh, the, the faceless man, the little girl who's at the, the, the home of the faceless men, uh, the ho- house of black and white in Game of Thrones, who oh. uh, are, who's always beating up an Arya. Yeah, I, um, I don't know what that means. Sintra, I didn't even realize the, that. Sorry. Yeah, I did, finally clicked for me today. Sintra, who's the healer. Uh, Nayak, who is our like geek boy manifesto, who is 100% me at age 21. Uh, I wasn't yeah. good at models, but I would talk anyone's ear off about revolutionary theory. Um, Cyril, who is the um, the former cops who talked about, he's not part of this group. <coughs> Skeen, who, as you said, AJ, is the other person who was trapped in this kind of like foster care adoption, like governmental raised children system. 
uh, Tamarin, who's the second in command leader who wants everyone to look, walk like a soldier and is kind of left in command once Vel and Sintra go off. And then uh, <coughs> uh, Luthen, who we will now refer to him by his real name, which, yes, is Luthen, not Stellan Skarsgård, Skarsgård or uh, Dr. Um, Selvig. It doesn't help that all of those are legitimate Star Wars names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, throw in one Tim, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so how'd you guys feel about all the scenes we got, like, watching the Rebels train and, like, come together? I I, I liked it, you know? I, I feel like it... I mean, it's... It's interesting that, like, the, it feels like every third episode is going to be, like, action, you know? And yeah. to have an episode this long that follows an episode as long as the last one that there's, there's a lot of conflict, you know, or a fair amount of conflict. Right. Um, but not a lot of real like action. And that's, that's fine. I mean, it, it totally works for me. Um, it, it feels like a very bold choice. I, I feel like the weekly release schedule maybe makes that a little bit more challenging in some regards, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I did really enjoy how they showed, you know, how everybody was coming to the rebellion kind of for a different reason and that they really didn't trust Andor because they didn't know his reason, you know? Yeah. And it's like sort of their degree to which they trust one another to really be all in on this plan is the degree to which they just know that the other the other ones amongst them, like, really hate the Empire and are really you know, yeah. in it for, for a reason, you know, and he's like, I'm here for the money. Like, is that a problem? Like, you know, and, and that, that kind of cleared the air that it was like, look, I, I do have a reason. It's just not some, some big reason, you know, like, yeah, I hate the empire, but like, you know, I, I did think it was interesting that he didn't like give his story still, you know, he's still yeah, like, that, I'm that not. did feel the way he said it. I had to remind myself that he is being paid because it did feel like he was kind of lying a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right, but he wasn't, right? That's that's really the only reason he's doing it. As, at least as far as what he's admitted to himself, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like, the the, I think he hates the Empire, but he doesn't, like, believe in the cause in terms of, like, yeah. I don't think yeah. he has any real thought that they can accomplish anything meaningful, against the empire or against the republic or against whatever power structure there happens to be like i think he sees it as like yeah there's the separatists there's these rebels those rebels whatever like what's the difference you're all just fighting against a wall basically and he's like if i can get some money fine i'll do it you know yeah and and i think what this episode is really setting up is that this whole show is that like on the one hand this show is doing a very good job of not falling into tropes and being fairly like, I don't really know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. But if there is anything I would predict, it's that at an emotional moment, perhaps in the next episode or perhaps towards the end, he is going to tap into more of his feelings about why he doesn't like the emperor empire. And that's going to help like move him from mercenary to revolutionary. Yeah. But you're right. I it, don't, is, it is for, I don't think it's like, going to be in the next episode though. I think that's like the arc of the season. Maybe. Yeah, I think you know. you're probably right. Just going back a bit, though, to what you said about, like, kind of the way they were talking, like, to me, it was – what I loved is that – and this is something I feel that you very rarely see, except V for Vendetta is one thing that, that gets into this a lot more, which is that, like, 
people coming together to fight oppression are people who've been oppressed. And a lot of times that means trauma bonding. Yeah. And like Mm. on the one hand, you're bonding together because of your shared traumas. But A, your traumas are often not shared. And so often there's kind of almost a weird competition of like who was hurt worst. And also like – and I speak from personal experience here. People who had a lot of childhood trauma become – like are often not the most personable of people. Mm. And like the fact that him and and God damn it, I just read Skeen. the list. Skeen. Skeen, thank you. It sounds like Screet. <laughs> the fact that him and Skeen are the two people who have the kind of the most obvious childhood trauma. Like they were in this horribly abusive like foster care system or whatever it is. And they're the two who like are in some ways have the most reason to sympathize with each other, but also have just been so learned to be distrustful of each other that they clash. Mm-hmm. Like that made complete sense to me. I, I like 100% believed everything those characters did. Speaking of childhood trauma, if you've ever worked with um, kids in the system or also adults who've been to prison um, because they both develop similar habits that Cassian especially shows don't touch me don't touch my stuff um like he's very guarded over his stuff his food his physical body and that all comes from when you're a child in the system as and he even says he was in a youth camp like um when you're a child in the system you learn that the only thing that you have control over is on you especially because in his mind as is for a lot of those kids authorities came and stole him away from his family mm-hmm. and like we saw that scene from her perspective and i'm some reason to think why she thought it was the right thing to do and i think i hope we get more of it because i'm not convinced yet but i think it's th- there's an arguments in both directions but yeah i think from his perspective this person f- stole him from his family yeah and like yeah and that's that you can still come to really appreciate your parents in that system but still often have like yeah all that distrust and stuff and and i just loved the way like Skeen kind of started to make the first move, but in that, like, they killed my brother. That's why I'm in this. That's why I'm upset. And and also that it was – they did kill his brother, but it's not that they shot his brother. Right. It's that they ruined his brother's life and destroyed his brother's life and so his brother took his own life. Yeah. Yeah. They caused his brother's death basically. Right. And the way he says that and then – and it's this real moment of connection and then it's also like, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Right. And walks away. He's like, that's the like, closest to an apology you're going to get. And Yeah. <laughs> such a good line. And, and Cassian's not like, oh, that's good. I accept it. He's like, that's close enough. Like, that's the way he says apology accepted basically, you know. Right. Like – And – Yeah, because – Good. Oh, I was going to say um, about these this ragtag band of rebels here. One of the things I really love is they remind me so much of George's original idea for the rebels. You know, like if, if you look at it, when George was writing it, they were essentially like the Viet Cong to the United States's empire. Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they are not soldiers, they are very much not soldiers. They don't know how to stand. Like, if you think for two seconds about what Cassian says about them needing to switch sides, yeah. like, if they had to draw guns in a firefight, Skeen and Tamaray or whatever his name is, they would have bumped into each other. Yeah. And that's not something that someone who isn't a soldier or who hasn't had to fight for their lives would have even thought of. The fact that they didn't, they weren't prepared. He even asks, what were you going to do without me? 
you know, but right. also seeing on the flip side of that, the something special, like you brought up, Matthew, that, you know, there's that spark that unites them that the Empire will never have. Like that little um, navigating tool that looks like a little Polaroid. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, it's like, out. a Polaroid? <laughs> but like that, using low tech, that's exactly how we, you know, we lost in Vietnam. Is like we were outsmarted by people who had a reason to fight, you know, and saw this, you know, this idea and they use these low grade tech ideas that we never would have had. And I'm not going to get into, you know, the morality or the reality of the Vietnam War, but just the idea of these people who have a reason to fight that out that surpasses their ability to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And it to me, it also really helps, and again, kind of ties into that revolutionary aspect of like, you know, the first time we ever see the rebels in the original movies, they're going to attack the big, huge galaxy ending control level station. Here, they're trying to do a heist to steal a one quarter of a year's worth of money for this one like mid-level Sector. system. Like, yeah. it's just such a small, the stakes are so low I mean, stakes for them are very high. They could they could die, but like, the empire's not going to fall if they succeed in this mission. You know, it's but but honestly, most of a revolution like is going to be much more stuff like this than it is going to be blowing up the Death Star. Yeah. And I yeah, think that's I, why Luthen. So I was going to say, I think that's why Luthen looks so distraught at the end of the episode because you're right. He basically sent Cassian on a suicide Cassian on a suicide mission for for nothing. Like, like you said, for not much at all in the grand scheme of things, it's incredibly important. But if Cassian right. and them die, the rebellion just continues. Yeah, and if they succeed, the empire is is still yeah alive yeah, yeah it's still alive too. Yeah, nothing yeah. really changes in the immediate future if they succeed or fail. I, I I agree with like the essence of what you're saying, but I feel like there's a little bit underselling like actually the scope of what they're doing. Like it's mm-hmm. like three months of payroll for an entire sector, which I think is like a fairly large amount of space. And like three months of payroll is like a lot. Like it's a large heist. You know, it's a, right. it's, it's a, a, a quarter. It's like 25 percent of a year, a year's worth of. Pay. Yeah, yeah that, that's not. That's, yeah. that's a big item out of a budget. You know, like I. A hundred percent, it's not going to cause the Empire to fall. But, like, I do think the idea is, like, it's a pretty big deal. It's just compared to, like, destroying the Death Star, you know, it's like, all right, right. It's, you know. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, there's historical precedent. That's, like, a lot of, like, the French, early French Revolution, the, the Soviet mm-hmm. Revolution, like, other rebellions yeah. start with movements like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's, like, yeah, but it's, like, it's dozens of events like this help – in the same way that, like, in Rebels, a lot of their early missions and even later missions are not things that are going to end the Empire. Right. <laughs> but they're helping one group of refugees get safe or bringing food to one group. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Just remember that timeline-wise, while Cassian is pl- planning this heist that's going to defy, you know, g- that could put his life on the line, um, Zeb and um, Ezra are stealing fruit. Right. Canonically, yeah, yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, which I, like I think did, um, did the, oh, what are their names? Um, 
Did the Carnes have a Meluron? Was that a Meluron in that yes. bowl? It was. Yes, right? it yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I was gonna say also seeing this band of rebels. The thing I am most looking forward to in this show, and it, it's a couple episodes down the road, is when we finally meet Saw and the Partisans in their heyday, because they are going to be the exact opposite of these rebels. Mm. They are soldiers. Right. I, I, I will say one of the things we've kind of committed to is that Paul and I have not really watched. I, I'm sorry. Oh, Paul, OK. I, I apologize. Yeah. No, no. yeah. I mean, I imagined I like, that he's in a, a lot tra- of the same They did name drop him. They did name drop him. They did. Yeah, that's I not heard that. like like I'm not spoiling that in the sense that they did name drop him in a previous episode. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen any of the previews. I mean, I know I've heard like somewhere someone mentioned right. some other character that. Well, Mon Mothma. Sure I think it was Mon Mothma who said his name. Or no, no, no. It was Ski. No, it was in the last episode. Yeah. When he said, said he, they would that. like uh, do something just for so fun. So if nothing like, else, I'm saying I hope we and... see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because we'll yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we'll get to see more of that, you know, and like, um, you know, and and even with like the X-wing stuff, you know, the the you know, we don't see much of this, and I would have loved more of it. But like the sense of some people who are like, can this farm kid actually fly one of these like actual like you know top level? space fighter craft and his friends like yeah he can like bullseye womp rats so oh of course he can fly, fly a ship and go into hyperspace of course you just reminded um, <laughs> me of a of a really like uh, sort of important thing from a new hope that i forgot about pablo hidalgo brought up this um speaking of mon mothma and the importance of her storyline when you were talking about those little throwaway things in a new hope like that um there's a line when they're when he tells them to take princess leia away and there's uh-huh. a guy in the background who looks at Vader and says, it's dangerous to keep her here. We mm. don't know why it's dangerous. They're an empire. We mm-hmm. haven't seen the Senate do anything in Star Wars That's after true. the fall of the Republic. And now what we're starting to get the impression of with Mon Mothma, and I'm sure we'll get it wherever they're going for whatever dinner party they're going to, like, we're getting this impression that, like, Maybe there is more power to being an imperial senator than we've given credit before. And that line is going to be more – it's going to make more sense thanks to this show. Yeah, yeah, and it is in the events of A New Hope when the the imperial senate is actually disbanded, right? When it's like there's right. no more senate anymore. And yeah. so up until that point, there's still some – I mean in Rebels, right? I guess spoilers for the – Season four of Rebels, which we don't really want to do, right? Because covering that separately. Uh, and- I, I think it's relevant enough to this, and enough people have seen it. So if you haven't so seen season four of Rebels I've, yet, and you're waiting, yeah. are you going to wait on it? No, I was just going to say, I, I think I can say it in a way that's not too specific. But there, there is an instance of where they are trying to. Oh no, maybe we already covered this. We already covered this one. This was the yeah, like Mon- yeah, Mon- Mon Mothma appears in Rebels no. in like season two. Yeah, but and, like, the- that, yeah, and let me just say the thing. She talks about Gorma. <laughs> okay, just say say the thing you're talking. about. It was the one where um they go and they're they they go back to Geonosis, right? And mm-hmm. they're trying to get the the poison canisters and take them away so that they can show that present that to the Senate. Oh, yeah, because they think 100%. that will make a difference, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, theoretically, there are still people that believe that the Senate can do something and that that they can basically be like hey look we're doing this we need to stop it we need to shut this down um and that 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 can have an effect right so 
in in a new hope that's kind of the the end of the line for that that's like oh won't this be a problem it's dangerous to keep her here and then like you know the next later that day it's like (laughs) the the senate has been disbanded the you know the governors i I think that's so perfect for it because that is also a big part of how you know like hitler with stalin with like a lot of fascist or you know authoritarian leaders of any kind like that's often the thing is that you start having a theoretically de- democratically elected body that gives you legitimacy and but they're all your puppets and you make them more and more your puppets and over time more and more of them start stopping wanting to be puppets and wanting to call out the fact that you're horrible and eventually you're just like fine i don't even need the legitimacy anymore i have enough military power right. that I'm not even going to pretend that I am a legitimate political figure. I just am the new politics. And yeah, like I think I think I can headcanon all of that into that brief conversation you're talking about in A New Hope. But we don't really get that in A New Hope. We get a little bit of it in Rebels and a lot more in the novels. And I'm, I'm really excited to see more of how that happens here. For sure. Because like, like, part of my sense is – and I think this is also where more of the – like I appreciate that we're getting these two different levels because I think you're right, Paul, that like it does feel like a small heist. But I think part of the point is going to be that the heist is part of a larger plan mm, yeah. that these folks don't know about. But Lufin and um, Mon Mothma probably do. And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing how all that comes together. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, they've already kind of alluded to like – They've got money problems, right? Like, yeah. like these rebels were like digging for roots and stuff and drinking some kind of milk that they did not really enjoy <laughs> very much. Um, and and in five years, they're going to have X-Wings and Y-Wings. Right, like, exactly. And where are they going to get the – I mean, they're going to steal some, but they might buy some, right? And right. like the – regardless of whether they're volunteers or paid soldiers, like they need to eat – Right. One way or another. And like, you know, you can't just go around stealing Melurons every day. Like, you, you know, sometimes you want to oh, be I able to be less. <laughs> yes. But you. but also like one thing that proves how again brings down the scope again is they're also still using the same airships in Empire Strikes Back on Hoth that they were using in Kenobi. Right. You know, like seven mm-hmm. years earlier, eight years earlier. Like, yeah, so 13 years well, earlier. or 13 years. Sorry. I'm like, yeah, I was like, I missed the five there. But yeah. like, yeah. um, but yeah, like they're they're still using the same tech, which means that like that money goes far. But at the end of the day, not nearly as far as they really need it to. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing about A New Hope also, like. At the end, it's not like they're dealing this huge blow to the Empire, really. Like, they blew up one weapon, you know. The Empire still has all the other weapons they had before that brand new weapon went online. Like, they're really just trying to survive because they were all going to get blown up by that weapon, right? Like, Yeah, like I think that's often a big point. It's like destroying the Death Star doesn't do anything to hurt the Empire that you knew about before the Death Star. You know, right. Death Star. It just keeps it from going past that point, from going right. to, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could still go to systems and just, you know, sh- kill everything there and destroy it with, like, Star Destroyers just shooting at them, right? Like, yeah, which that's is why I somewhere. always recommend, I think Star Wars is best in books, and I always recommend them. And the Aftermath trilogy is fantastic at showing how even the destruction of the death of the second Death Star and the death of their emperor still does not destroy the empire. Like, 
it, belief goes both ways. Like we were talking about in the beginning, it's a powerful weapon for the Republic or for the rebellion, but it's also a powerful weapon for the empire. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the way you guys are talking about that. I think it really shows why, like you said, Paul, like it's funny to me that I, we're not getting action. You know, it's funny because it's exactly as you said for last episode, the only thing we get that's at all actiony is a TIE fighter flying overhead. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, but even that is done in such a cool way because, you know, mostly what I know about TIE fighters is that they are tinfoil with no shields and fairly bad aim. And five of them might destroy a single X wing. <laughs> but then in this context, one TIE fighter like looking at rebels looks terrifying mm -hmm. and like a bunch of rebels living in the land hiding when an enemy like, you know, flies overhead to me again, that's very much Vietnam and like, you know, helicopters and people hiding from helicopters and stuff. So yeah, it, just, it was, I just thought it was funny because it's what you pointed out about the last episode, but also that was such a good scene. For yeah. Sure. That speaks again to that cinematography. Just like never has one TIE fighter, been more terrifying than in that sequence. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on like the group of people who we meet? Uh, like we met them all last episode, but I feel like we really get to connect with them and learn the, their individual stories this episode. We have we have canonical foreground space lesbians. Yeah, in Sintas and so. Bell. I think so. Like, I mean, you can say like, yeah, we haven't, you know, it, they didn't say it, but like, I mean, she shares a, she already shares a blanket and then we see both of them like, and then they're together throughout the rest of the episode, like nearby one another. Yes, we can do better, but it's still better that it's another step forward in just representation in general. I thought that was really, really cool. You know, nice and subtle, but still still a good mm -hmm. ad. Yeah, I thought that was heavily implied, and I, I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if that was more explicit in future episodes, particularly like I, when one of them probably gets like killed off tragically because everything goes horribly. But, you know, we'll right. see. Which, which won't be a barrier gaze because it will be there's a gay person among a group, all of whom get killed. Yeah, oh, right, I, don't right, see, right, yeah. I don't see them surviving next episode, unfortunately. Like... I've come to care about Nemec too much already. There's right, right, no way right. Star Wars lets him live. <laughs> yeah. Which, which also, though, would be fitting because not, – not that I think this has to happen for Andor's – like, Paul and I have been talking about how Andor is the perfect character to write a prequel about mm -hmm. because in so many ways he's such a blank slate. Like, we know the big points of where he gets to, but we don't know the details of how. Yeah. And I think one of those is that, that I haven't really thought about until I was watching this episode is that – He's not really good at working in a team. Like you pointed this out, Paul, that he starts out as like, I don't want to work with people. But then by the end of the Rogue One, he is ready to work with people. Yeah. And to me, like working with a team that mostly gets slaughtered because they don't really – they're a little bit out of their depth. Yeah, that would be a good reason why I'd be like, I'll work with this robot who I programmed. But right. other than that, you know, I don't really want to like deal with other people. And I think I think you're right on the money and – you know, earlier you were talking about Cassian, I believe it was you, Paul, talking about, um, oh, well, he's still being very guarded about his reasons. I legitimately don't think he has reasons. I don't think mm. that I don't think Cassian has ever thought beyond the scope of his own survival yet to the point where mm -hmm. he even really processes that there is 
a system of oppression that is keeping him down. I think all of his oppression has been so personal that it's always the barrier that's in front of him. There's never like that. He hasn't seen the system of oppression holding him down yet. And I think this is the the thing that's going to incite him to understanding that system of oppression, meeting these people, coming to care about these people. I think they are his motivation for how he goes from being out for himself to being a rebel. And we can Mm. see it developing in the way that he could have very easily walked out of that tent when she, when he said, what were you going to do without me? Yeah. yeah, Like he could have walked out and quit there and been like, you guys are dead meat. But instead he goes, I'm flying the ship. Right. And then they're marching and he goes, you need to switch sides. Yeah. He doesn't ask. He just starts taking charge and he's automatically instinctively making the transition from follower to leader. Yeah. And I think the point you made is utterly brilliant because it really highlights the difference for him. And I think this is something that often those of us in more privileged positions who want to be part of activist movements or, you know, real change bringing movements can forget is that for a lot of these characters, they remember that life under the Republic was significantly different than life under the Empire. Because there were all these freedoms and there was democracy and you didn't have to use a chain code to like identify yourself as Bad Bash teaches us. And like, you know, the empire is to people who had a good life under the Republic, the empire is significantly worse and has taken away massive amounts of freedom. What was life like for him or the Republic? Yeah. For him, the Republic was this strange ship of aliens that comes and steals him away from his home. So and, – and, and, and again, it, it's back to um, Jin's line of like, I don't care if the Empire flag is up there if I never have to – if I never right. get to look up. What difference like, does it make if you don't look up? Yeah. And like like I, I really love that because I think this, that's a really big point of it is that for him, he doesn't think there's a di- – for him, the empire isn't the problem because he doesn't remember the republic being this good thing. Diego Luna spoke about this movie – or about this show and said it was a migrant story. Mm. And I can mm. tell you I while – I, while I am white as the driven snow, all of my family is not. And all of the okay. family I was raised with is not. And – I use that because when you see the world, like I said, when you live with microaggressions, like you brought up that privilege, when you live, when you don't live with microaggressions, yeah, you see the big systemic thing that's holding you down, but not for, not for Cassian, for Cassian as, as an immigrant, for Cassian as a person of color, it's every person he passes on the street that gives him a second glance when he walks in the street. Everyone is a part of his oppression, not just the big bad empire. Like it's every single person that he interacts with that looks at him twice because he has an accent. That's why it's so important that Cassian has that accent. Like that is the thing that made me cry when I saw Rogue One was hearing him talk like that. Because like I said, he already starts out at a different barrier than any other character we've had as a main character in Star Wars. And it is incredibly important to understanding why he doesn't have a story, why he doesn't care about the Empire, because he fights like Saw, he fights this fight every day of his life. And that is something that this group of rebels 
does not understand with their pie-in-the-sky ideals like what Nemec has. That's why he looks at Nemec like he's crazy. We all hear Nemec and we're like, oh, that's me posting on my blog forum when I was 14 about how I'm going to end depression. And Cassian's just like, dude, you have no idea what oppression is. You don't know what you're talking about. You think you know because you're aware of it and you look at it. But if you've never lived it, if you've never experienced it, you don't know. I, I'm now in Paul's place of just like wanting to applaud. So I don't know what <laughs> to say. But yeah, no, I, I, I think you captured that so well. And it's funny because one of the things we talked about, I think a couple of us ago, but was about how like, look at, for example, look on the other side, look at Luke. Like, Luke's a kid who works on the farm and gets to go into Tashi to play with his friends and buy power converters. Like, mm-hmm. the Empire – he is not suffering active oppression at the hands of the Empire on a daily basis. Maybe, like, probably life on his planet is not as good as it could be and, like, you know, things are, are not great. But, yeah, he's not going through anything like what Cassian is doing, which doesn't make Luke's story any less important. But, yeah, like, I, I mean, I, I just love the way you told that story. I think your perspective on it is so vital because – yeah, because I, I remember him saying it's a migrant story, and that we hadn't really seen that yet. But yeah, right. It, it, but yeah, but it, we have. Like, we look have at, totally look yeah. at Marva. Like that is white saviorism, a hundred percent. The idea that she genuinely believes that she made his life better by taking him away from his family, like by taking him away from that world. And like, sure, there had been other damages already done to him. The damage of l- literal colonialism had already been done to his world and his people. But to think that she could just take him away and 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 fix him is is incredibly and she cut him off from his roots. Not only does he like not speak his own language anymore, you see him struggling to learn the language. That's that's a tiny little detail that I loved was she um, Sintas is teaching him the language of Aldani and he's struggling with it. Which is, again, sort of like this callback to that idea that he's lost touch with his own roots, with his mm. own language. You know, there's there's a linguistic thing there that I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like how they mentioned that he, you know, he speaks several languages, um, but obvi- he has a, you know, he has a clear accent in the what do they do? They call it the common tongue, or what do they call it in Star Wars? Galactic like, basic. Galactic basic. Okay, yeah. Um, and he, I mean, you know, learning learning a new language in three days is, you know, uh, I'm sure there's apps that will tell you that that's possible, but like, really, just you know, <laughs> learning a few words is probably the be- the best you're gonna do, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I've um, like. I mean, my my wife like grew up speaking Toisonese, which is an uncommon di- not uncommon. It actually used to be kind of the most commonly spoken in you know uh, Chinatowns around the world. But like yeah. within within now in the United States, like you you can't um, like she basically she moved when she was eight, and then you know she has her family, but but like outside of that, there's not really opportunity to speak it, right? And so um, like. I I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to form like a really coherent statement or thought around it. But like everything you were saying, like kind of registers with me in terms of understanding sort of like um, her understanding of of 
that language and then English and, and other languages and kind of how that that works together, you know, and how, how it can be difficult if you don't have a like he doesn't have anyone to speak Canary to. Right. Since yeah, right. since he was I don't know how old he was supposed to be then, but I, I think it was like less than 10 ish at the most. Maybe we have no know. idea at this point because yeah. they uh, they just messed up everything we knew about about Cassian's age going into this show. Right. I'm also just going to point out that the idea that you are a certain number of years old only makes sense if every planet has the same annual cycle. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, the, the whole Star that's Wars whole thing. Star Wars. They, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like in terms of, you know, how how <laughs> you, you can still quantify in terms of like the length of time of physical development or, you know, right. experience or yeah. whatever. But yes, I mean, you're, everything about Star Wars and years <laughs> doesn't make any sense. But like, you know, he said when he was 13 until he was 16, right? He was in basically like some sort of a uh you know teenager prison kind of thing yeah right um which yeah, i think they were comparing tattoos from which felt so accurate yeah, yeah, so, yeah like which also like that's a thing we hadn't really ever talked about in star wars before is the idea of these like orphaned youths right like what did the empire do with these orphan kids now we know and yeah. we see that they're definitely falling into like gangs Right. Like those are definitely gang markings. But but also like was that the empire? I mean, how old is is Cassian supposed to be now? Is he Yeah. You know, like in Rogue One was he Diego Luna's age then and then here he's 5 years younger than that or is he here Diego Luna's age now and then that was 10 years old, you know what I mean? It's like it's it's I mean, a little hard to I believe what? they made him like 10 like 10 years older than he would have been because he was supposed to be 21 in this based on the timeline we had had established via Rogue One. He Wait. would have been 21, but that would have made him like two at the events of the first episode. So if yeah. he's like 10 or 11, it's like a nine year difference. Like because and, and I say this because Stardust M on TikTok and everywhere is the biggest Andor fan you will ever meet. And I trust her math completely. Originally, he was only supposed to be 26 in, in Rogue, Rogue One. one. Oh. And now he's like, he would be like 34 in Rogue One or something like that. Well, it, Which is I, about how old Diego Luna was then. I think he was like 36 mm, when Rogue One was right. shot. I think, though, it's important because to me, if the argument is that we only have a bad like child welfare system because of the Empire... I would not find that anywhere as convincing or as powerful because I think that I think it's easy to say, oh, eternal empire will treat like lost kids and orphan kids terribly or to say, oh, all the people in the in like the child protective services, you know, world are, you know, horrible racists who want to steal kids away. And like there's absolutely lots of racism there. There's absolutely lots of neglect and terrible people. But like I've known a lot of people who work in those systems and often they're working their asses off working you know far more hours than anyone yeah. should for far little pay but because of bureaucracies being what they are and and limited resources the result is still absolutely abysmally horrible for the kids and like a republic that holds the ideal of freedom 
but doesn't have the ability to go to a planet like Tatooine and free it, it can it just doesn't have the ability as powerful as it is with thousands of Jedi to challenge the huts enough to end slavery I would 100% believe would have a completely yeah. broken and terrible foster care orphanage you know juvenile detention system much like our own today you know like uh, like it's funny all the stuff you said about Marta and like stealing her away and all that like my sister is right now going through the process of applying to be a foster care parent in Seattle, uh, her and her partner. And like they're both white and Seattle actually has a very good system as part of why she's happy to do it, where they're giving her so much education about like all the different ways that they could accidentally be like imparting their own culture or like teaching the kids they adopt or foster that like their own their their origin culture is not okay and that like all these ways in which they're supposed to like they have to take classes on like different way to handle different people's hair and all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. and like just all these things and as well as all the stuff about like you know you know if you're gonna have them at your family tr Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, ask them about their traditions and make like change your traditions to make them feel like they're and there are people who will say like white people should never adopt in those situations anyway. And that's a completely different discussion that I think there's fair debates on both sides. That's not the point of this episode. But, but, but just to say that I think, I feel like whoever wrote that scene with Skeen and, and Andor clearly has some understanding of these issues because it was like all of that felt like, yes, there's laser swords and hyperspace, but this is in the same way that like Mon Mothman was having the issues with teenagers <clears throat> that parents in our own world do. This is this is what happens to elected kids in this universe, just like any other we know about. And whether it's true or not, I love the idea that Skeen might have been in the same – like they might have been in similar camps, but one under the Republic and one under the Empire and had the exact same experience. I really right. like Oof. that yeah, as a headcanon, yeah. like even if not explicit. That's, that's a really good point, yeah. Well, we try to make these episodes about 60 minutes. We're now crossing the 90-minute barrier. We're never not really very good at that. Um, but does any of you have any kind of last comments you want to make? Um, uh, actually, AJ, I want to give you a chance. You said Nayak is the character you're already falling in love with, so of course he's going to die. Uh, I hope not because I love him too. But what do you like so much about his character specifically? Well, it's – like I said, I, I really like the juxtaposition of what he represents versus what Cassian – lives in like i like i already mentioned just that idea of nemec does fall very much in that like performative activism thing he's very much that guy who's spoken about um you know wanting to end slavery you know wanting to end systems of oppression but like has never actually gone to a rally because he was a little bit too busy like he feels like that kind of guy says all the right things but and it's partly because he's young he hasn't had an opportunity yet, and now he's mm -hmm. trying to. And I feel like – I do not feel like he is prepared for the reality that Cassian lives in. I don't think he's prepared to stand up for and inevitably possibly die for these ideals that he preaches. And that's what makes him such a fascinating and, like, heartbreaking character for me is, like, I hope he lives – I hope he goes on to write that manifesto and, you know, we learn that he's out there, you know, preaching the good word. But as often happens in these cases, I could also see him becoming, seeing what happens, he survives and flips 
and sees right. that maybe maybe he was wrong. Maybe he judged him too harshly. Maybe he gets captured and the Empire, you know, tortures him and, and tells him how bad the rebels were. And he, you know, turns on he turncoats like there's so many different paths. He's right at the beginning of his journey toward the left, if you will, you know, like toward the spiritual left, like, if you will. And it is so easy for him to give up, for him to quit. Because just like Perrin, if he quits, it's not really going to affect his life too much. Like, he can find a way to navigate the Empire in a way that Cassian couldn't. And that idea of, like, this wide-eyed um, ide idealist who so many people identify with, but also don't see the, the blinders that he has on to reality just based on the privilege of how he was born in this empire versus how someone like Cassian was. I, so I, I feel like there's a lot of assumption there of like that all can be true, but also I feel like we don't actually know that much about him yet. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where like, I, I feel like a lot of times it's easy to see someone and and make a lot of assumptions in that regard and like those things aren't always true they're just often true and and i see what you're saying and i'm not trying to make assumptions about like his background or anything yeah. it's simply that that traditional discussion of his life was not made any harder under the empire being a you know pre presumably yeah. a white male but also just like a human that conforms right. to the galactic standard it's yeah. not that his life was easy again it's not that his life was privileged yeah. it's it all comes down to that same discussion we have of his life is not made any immediately harder, harder by virtue of how he presents himself to society yeah i mean was I, he I, even I, around in the republic like he was probably he, just he like a small the, kid then right like the republic was only 15 years ago yeah he's probably like eight he, he's definitely not a teenager but i feel like well he's and like, i'm not saying he has a he has any experience with the republic right, right. i'm just saying no, that the, remember like we discussed the same systems that hold the empire together are the systems from the republic yeah and again sure. right we just we also know via all of the expanded material that the republic is also founded on racism and xenophobia yeah. and a lot yeah. of that and so like i'm just taking that grand picture of what we have and again not saying that anything nemec lived through was easy or he was rich or anything like right. that just again that like the discussion of white privilege sort of always comes into the picture it always comes from a basis of it's not that it's easier it's just that it's not made any more difficult by virtue of how you yeah. present yourself. Yeah, and he definitely doesn't have the same experiences and face the same challenges that, that Cassian has right. throughout his whole and life. It's interesting, though, because I, like, I'll admit, I saw him in a very different way, and I think your perspective, like, I'll admit, I saw him in a very different way, and I think a lot of what you're saying could well be there, and I just missed it, and I'm really glad for that. I'm glad, not that I missed it, but that I'm hearing from you. I, I saw it a little bit differently, though, is that to me, to me, he came across more – the performative feel, performative to me feels like – because I've definitely met that person and I think that that person's out there. I think sometimes that person doesn't realize they're doing it where it's the like, you know, I, I think I believe in these things and I do believe in these things. But really like I read these cool books and I want to kind of – and I, I want people to like like my TikToks and like my, my, my treats. So I want to kind of show off a little bit and like get the performative act is of you're talking about, which – 
I think all of us on TikTok are to some extent guilty of, but I think that like a, a lot more than others, certainly, but that myself may be included there. But I, I think there's a part of that to, to me, he much more reads as someone who's autistic or like the Star Wars equivalent of that, whatever. I don't want to diagnose someone who has this like understanding that what's happening is wrong, but is just really much better at relating to ideas than to people. And I think there definitely is yeah. that sense of like that that kind of the online <laughs> activist, you know, it's like the person who goes I, – I, I, one of my first jobs was a labor organizer. And like we definitely experienced those kids who would come straight out of college and like they wanted to talk about like, you know um, – you know, different like what Mark said versus what Engels said mm -hmm. to a bunch of like, you know, cafeteria workers who wanted to talk about forming a union. And like that's a disaster. Right. I think I think the reason the way I, I push back a bit is because I feel like part of what we established earlier is I don't think you could be part of this crew unless you had gone through some kind of major trauma or or similar experience that gave you that reason. Like like I, I don't think skiing would be okay with the person you're talking about being on the team because he would be that like what's your reason your reason is not good enough and, and does, I, i'm very scheme, i'm very open to being wrong there though scheme so. does mention that like nobody believes in it like he does like he does right. bring up the fact that skeen is all Larry that nemec is all like heart about yeah. it and and again yeah. i don't want to take away from what other people read into nemec i really do think it comes down to experiences and i read that scene more how cassian reads it i yeah. think and from that perspective of i've seen a lot of people like nemec a lot of those young kids come fresh out of school and talk a big talk without any real experience and without the actual stones to back up what they preach and so you see rightfully so the, what he preaches and I see how many times I've been let down by that exact person. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's very fair. And I think I probably identify with him much mm -hmm. more than Cassian in that moment because of my own fairly privileged background. And so, yeah, so I think it's, it's, I, I, you've now, I still, I, I still have most of my same feelings. Yeah. I, I think we're both right. Perspective on the character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're and both that, right. Like, and that's the beauty that's why of the it. show's so like, good. Just like everything yeah, we've like, talked about in this yeah. show, both perspectives have merit. Both perspectives right. are right. Because, again, characters aren't two-dimensional, and we can either say yeah. he's performative or he's a true believer. Yeah. He's this – Mon Mothma can be the best rebel leader the world ever had and not the best parent to a teenage girl. Yeah. Like, we can hold – And that could be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I would say about – about him though is like is he that kid quoting marx or is he marx before there's a marx like there isn't it seems like there isn't this like you know depth of theory that people are quoting and studying in university right right that's that's great i like that a lot because yeah. you're right and to someone like cassian Marx would feel exactly like I'm describing. Exactly. As, what do you know? And you're yeah. right. Maybe he is that guy. Yeah. I, I kind of I, – I, I, I was going to say I, I think it's kind of halfway because I think yeah, – to me, when I say he's the one quoting Marx, 
it's not that I mean that he's quoting the words of someone else. Yeah. It's that I think he's talking to someone on a theoretical basis where mm-hmm. that person has had a lived experience yeah. that he hasn't had. Right. You're Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of think his future in the show is probably he's going to get killed off and then Cassian's going to read the manifesto. Right. Like, I, I feel like that's also I will say I don't think that all of these people are going to die in the next episode if they're going to be sort of the motivation for Cassian to to kind of mm-hmm. come to it more not come to it on a theoretical basis, but come to it more as like, a, okay, this is a thing worth doing as opposed to like, I'm just what's in front of me, you know, how do I have to right. deal with what's in front of me? I think my my pie in the sky theory, and this is not based on any previews or anything like that, I promise. Like, this is literally just based off of the interaction we had and how they compare to them. Yeah. And the fact that Skeen mentioned Saw. Yeah. yeah. I think Skeen seems so, like, out to get Cassian. Like, he seems like the outlier in this group. Right. I think Skeen is a partisan. And I think he's part Mm. of this group as a sort of a spy for saw. And I would not be surprised to see in either the next episode or the episode after that, if we see the partisans come in and sort of like rescue the crew from this fight and take, take and or directly from this grassroots rebellion to the exact opposite of the same rebellion. Like that's, that's my pie in the sky theory based on absolutely nothing (laughs) other than what you just said right now and where my brain Mm -hmm. went. (laughs) And and I love that. And again, listeners or viewers, if you've seen trailers that give you the answer to the question I'm about to pose, please don't send it into us Mm -hmm. uh, or send it to us after the show is done. Um, But yeah, I, I think one of the things I love so much about the show's writing is that I generally don't know. Like, I think it is very possible that the whole team gets wiped out except Andor, and then Saw comes along to rescue him because he, like, came to, you know, follow up on Skeen, and that gets, you know, Andor into the next level of the story. It could be that, as you said, that most of this team gets rescued, and a couple of them get killed, and a couple of them don't. Like... I have literally no idea what the big climax <laughs> that we're building to. Yeah, I'm yeah. so right. happy for that. Yeah, yeah. Like, they've okay. really escaped prequelitis very well so far. You know, yeah. the just the where where you just know what's going to happen and it feels like there's no real suspense and and there's no stakes for any of the characters and it's like they they really have avoided that being a problem. Like somehow it just yeah. hasn't. I, I don't see it becoming a problem, really. And I think it's partly because, as we noticed when we talked about every other person this episode, Cassian is the constant, and everyone else is in flux around him. And we're seeing mm-hmm. so much growth with all of these other characters because we do know where Cassian is going. Yeah. It's the opposite of what they did with the, the prequel trilogy where we spent all of our time focusing on Anakin when we knew where he was going. Like yeah. with this, we're building the world. We're building these other characters. And Cassian is just kind of our, our anchor. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, all right. I, I really want to wrap up now because we do have one quick uh, – uh, Stinger, we're going to get to it later. I should stop saying we're going to do Stinger, the quick. Purpose, I, I want to kind of move those, those kind of things yeah, quick. Yeah, we, yeah. No, I, I think I have a plan for it this time. Okay. But let me just say this. Either you have a last word on this episode you wanted to say. Uh, AJ is our guest first. 
Um, I just want to say that I really loved this episode. Um, it was very, very Sorkin, very like West Wing. You know, the dialogue in this show continues to be immaculate. And I think it is the best paced show in like nerddom circles right now. Um, it just, it's constantly tense there. It doesn't ever feel too slow or too fast. Like I, I just feel like we're in a very sweet spot and I'm really excited for the rest of the series. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo all of that and just throw this tiny detail that I wanted to mention. Just like that guy who's in charge of Imperial security now on Ferrix and like once the title, even though he knows it doesn't come with a pay bump. Like, I just thought that it was just this great idea, just little tiny throwaway line. Like, I know it doesn't come with a pay bump. And the other guy said, Yeah, you could call whatever, you call yourself whatever you, can wear you want. An evening gown what? if you want. Just Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I just want to end with what was my other favorite line from the episode, along with the rebellion one, which I think kind of really goes to what everything we've been saying about Andor. And his like all of them are in a place of like we want to fight the rebellion. We want to fight the. Re we want to be the rebellion against fighting the empire. And it's where he says, "I've always hated the empire. I don't really know what to call what I feel now." Mm -hmm. You know, because to me that's the like he's deaf. Like to me, the conversation that he had with uh, Luthen. To me, the conversation that he had with Luthen. Where Luthen was like, what if you could fight them, though? What if you could do more? What if you could kick their it, – it's kind of opened this door for him where maybe he's like, maybe we're not just punching the wall. But he doesn't know what's it, – it's not a – he had that one conversation, so now he's totally on board the way we'd often get in a movie. It's he's going through the process and he's now feeling feelings that he doesn't know how to identify yet, which I just think is brilliant. If I may, I have one final quote that you just reminded me. I did have one more quote and that was – Surprise from above is never as shocking mm. as surprise from below. And if that is not the entire rebellion summed yeah. up yep. in one sentence. Totally. Totally. Because so much as we're going to talk about is that the imperial arrogance of just thinking they're never going to rise up because they're so scared. And all right. That. All right. And, well, um, <clears throat> we, need to, we need to wrap this up. So, uh, AJ, you're a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, I'm hoping we're getting some people who know you from other things who come over to listen to this. But for, for many of our listeners who may not know your content yet, talk a bit about kind of what you do, particularly on TikTok and, and kind of where they can find you and what they'll find. Yeah, so um, you can find me on most places, like I know TikTok and YouTube on um, Jedi underscore Starkiller. Um, same with Instagram. Twitter's a little weird. It's one Jedi Starkiller. Apparently, there are a lot of other people who like those two words I slam together. <laughs> I make a lot of Star Wars-based content, a lot of lore content lately, um, but I also spend a lot of time examining some intersectionalities with Star Wars, um, like mm -hmm. race and the way that that impacts Star Wars. Wars, and generally any other nerdy thing that falls under the spectrum. I'm a big fan of like linguistics. Um, I've been watching all of the shows right now, Rings of Power, House of the Dragon, all that great stuff. So I've been periodically making content on other stuff as well, but I stick mainly in the Star Wars scope. Yeah, it is definitely great stuff and, and definitely I suggest people check it out. All the links will be in the show notes. Um, Paul, shall I give your normal... Google yeah. Zen Madman, Zen Madman's everywhere. Um, you have specific stuff to highlight. Yeah, yeah. I'm Zen Madman in all the places. Um, except email. There's no Zen Madman at gmail.com. That's that sometimes like someone there gets invited to the podcasts yeah. and there, there that's is not a me. Zen Madman at gmail.com <laughs> where I've sent emails to accidentally. But yes, that's correct. 
<clears throat> yeah, check that out. Great content about poker, about chess, about other stuff. And of course, all of my content is found under The Ethical Panda. If you go to theethicalpanda.com, there you'll find my website where you'll get all these episodes, all the episodes of Superhero Ethics. Paul and I have recently done episodes on Cobra Kai and on uh, the movie Rounders and and poker. We've done stuff about um, uh, just the whole idea of like – Having a fi- having a feeling about a piece of media where a lot of other people may feel something kind of similar to you, but for much worse reasons, and sort of how you deal with all that in a very charged fandom environment, and it's a lot of great content that we really appreciate. And of course, both these podcasts are part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. If you go there, you'll find like this is the Star Wars Universe podcast. There's a Star Trek Universe podcast. They've done great content on Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds. There's the MCU cast, which does episode by episode on She-Hulk and all the great stuff. Check out all that stuff, theethicalpanda.com and strandedpanda.com. And on Ethical Panda, you'll also find all the ways to contact us, email, Twitter. We love feedback. Love your ideas. Please send them in and we'll respond to them on a later episode. So uh, with all that, uh, thank you all so much for being great guests. Thank you all for listening today. And may the force be with you. As you have probably guessed, uh, that exit was felonious, uh, to quote a, uh, I, oh God, the Kingston Trio, great band, folk band that I love, that my mother loved. Um, but, but, so this is our encore, and AJ, we often ask like different questions. So the question I want to ask you is if we go through all of Andor without ever seeing a lightsaber ignite, will that be a good or a negative, positive or a negative thing in your mind? Positive. How come? <laughs> I was like, um, honestly, I I love lightsabers. I love the Jedi. They're the thing that you think of when you think of Star Wars. But for me, my favorite part of Star Wars is the real people in the dirt living their lives. And I don't need a lightsaber in this show. I need if I see the force at all, I want to see it through someone like Jared Imway from Rogue One mm-hmm. as a religion. I don't need to see a laser sword wielding superhero. I feel the same. I feel like lightsabers and the Jedi are what makes Star Wars Star Wars. And I feel like not having them show up at all makes Andor transcend Star Wars. Like it transcends, you know, genre, like in a way that, you know, it, it doesn't mean it's better than it. It means that it's yeah. something else that's like it it takes to me it takes Star Wars and it makes it more than it was by removing the thing that makes it the most what it is. You know? Yeah. Um, I think that's where really good to put yeah. it. It's like t- when there's one spotlight on one thing, it's hard to see everything else. So this right. is kind of like what if we turn down that spotlight, turn yeah. up the lights on other parts of mm-hmm. the stage? And spend some time really looking at those. Yeah, everything else can breathe more and carry more weight when it's not overpowered by, like, you know, the light from a lightsaber, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Which are still amazing and one of the best cinematic creations ever. Yeah, but it makes Star Wars more in line with the other media that Star Wars presents where you can't see a lightsaber. A lightsaber's right. cool, but in a book, it's not nearly as impactful. And this feels more in line with mm. the the expanded universe of Star Wars than just the films. Right. Right. Sure. And, and also, I feel like 
And Paul and I, we've talked a little bit about this before, or maybe a lot about this before. But like, <laughs> Probably a lot. One of the things that A New Hope is supposed to establish is that the Jedi are pretty much gone. Right. And Luke is this last hope, except maybe for <clears throat> Leia, and except maybe for Ezra, and except maybe for Kanan, <laughs> and except like- Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's one of those like they keep adding but one more. And granted, yeah. some of those are very much off screen by the time Luke comes along, but like- when you have – when you always have a Jedi show up, it makes the universe feel much smaller than I think it actually is. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that this whole thing happens without a Jedi ever showing up in any way, to me it makes Luke be, Luke showing up to help the X-Wings so much more impactful, you know, because they – that's what they – they've done so much. They've, they've gotten to the point that they have this fleet of X-Wings and calamari cruisers and all this stuff without – a Jedi, which is fantastic. But now they need that one amazing pilot to take them over the hump, and that's where Jedi comes in. And I feel like, yeah, like the less Jedi appear in something like this, the more powerful Luke becomes. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Uh, thank you both so much. And to all of you, uh, you know, please keep being good fans because for all of you, you have your own rebellion. <laughs> <laughs>